Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and a podcaster. Uh, I have a podcast called Blocked and Reported, sort of my main gig. I have a newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com. I also have this call-in show. And uh, today I want to talk a little bit about um, culture war stuff. So I have lately felt like some of my writing and thinking is trapped in like a circle, like it's not really going anywhere, like we're having the same fights over and over and over. I actually did a newsletter yesterday basically asking for my readers uh, to give me ideas of non-culture war stories because I, I don't want to fall into this trap of only writing about culture war stuff. And it just sort of got me thinking about the extent to which I don't know exactly what I even mean by a culture war story. It, it's like that old... Um, Justice uh, Potter Stewart idea of like, I know it when I see it. So I know certain fights I get into online are stupid and counterproductive and very likely to lead to an increase in understanding or like justice in the world. And I know, I think it's a little bit less true of the stuff I write, like longer form, but I know there's some stories where it just feels a little bit like a waste of time. And I'm trying to better understand where that dividing line is because like one, I wrote for reason a story about a woman, uh, a professor, community college professor. By the way, you can get in the queue if you have any questions about anything. We can talk about whatever you want after I give the spiel. I did a story for reason about a community college professor who was suspended from teaching and faced an investigation that cost her community college about $250,000 because she briefly disagreed with a race training. And she sort of gave an argument against this race training during the race training. So... To me, that's an example of like, is it a culture war story? Yes. Is it newsworthy? I think also yes. And so I, I feel like I don't want to stop writing about stuff like that. What I do want to stop doing is like getting in the same arguments over and over and over again. The Rogan clip of him using the N-word is like a pretty good example of this because seemingly yesterday, uh, although I guess it was in, in 2020, we had fights over Donald McNeil Jr. and Mike Pesca using the the n-word like in journalistic ways or to, to ask for clarity about some other event neither of them used it as a slur and i remember back then people making the same arguments like oh you just love using the n-word you think white people should use it all the time those were stupid arguments then and they're stupid arguments now and we've never really gotten to the point of actually talking about whether we should discard the the use mentioned distinction or, or having like a substantive talk about this it just seems to be sloganeering and catchphrases so i'm torn because like I do think it's important to defend liberal principles, but how many times can you repeat yourself over and over and over again before you're sort of, you're the chump who keeps getting sucked into these unwinnable arguments where it's like everyone knows what the two sides think and there's very little conversation or shared understanding of any sort. So part of this is just sort of being down on, on the whole discourse right now, on the way we talk about everything, especially online. And um, I don't know. I sort of wish I could... I'm hoping to write about some slightly less culture warish uh, issues, but I guess I don't know what that means exactly. So I have some more thoughts, but I'll just start taking calls. Ben, what is up? Hey, thanks. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Hey, uh, I would say uh, in response to your comments just now, I, I do think that it, it, it may seem sort of predictable and, um, and uh, routinized, but, I think, you know, you do over time sort of iterating these points, it's easier to kind of flesh out the principle. 
um, especially where there's so many people who have a different approach to these issues as you do. And there's so much uh, silence and deflection and deference that there are not that many people engaging these arguments and actually getting to the concrete principles that are at stake because they just would prefer to defer or just not become involved. I mean, that's the kind of whole spiral of silence problem. And uh, I just appreciate that, you know, you're (laughs) willing to keep engaging. And I think maybe, you know, over time with more and more iterations, uh, the principles will become refined. So that's my thought. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I'd I'd like to think I'm involved in like a process like that. I guess... On the other hand, like in the last two years, think of all the subsects that have launched and the the focus of like persuasion and a lot of center right figures and Andrew Sullivan and Barry Weiss. It could be that like three or four years ago, I was a member of a small group of people sometimes writing about these issues, but that now the field is more crowded. I mean, does that make sense to you? Yeah. But I, I still think that um, – I mean I have to assume that you know, with your recent announcements that you're profiting from uh, participating in this way. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm sure you've taken into account if you, know, if you just you know, left that, that whole sort of field of, of contention, you know, how, how that might change. On the other hand, of course, then you have the – dilemma of sort of the audience capture and being captive or, or feeling as if you have to kind of mine the same territory over and over again, which I understand could be sort of boring from an intellectual standpoint. I mean, I, I feel intrinsically attracted to a lot of these issues and I'm not, I'm not sort of doing it just because I get audience feedback, but, but the audience feedback concept is really important because I, I get more emails by far about culture war stuff than about anything else. And you know, I wrote I wrote a book about non cultural war stuff, and I got you know some nice reviews, some nice responses, but just mm-hmm. a fraction of the um, of the attention you get for writing about that the you know it makes sense. Be, some issues really get the blood boiling. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Can I make one final point before I hang up? Um, sure. I, I think, but don't do you feel? I, I just I know people have have started to perceive this, but I feel like something is. There's some traction being made here. I, I do think that um, the the pendulum may be starting to swing more towards a um, a less hysterical zone yeah. on on a lot of these cultural war issues. And I and I have to think that you know if it wasn't for this whole sort of heterodoxy, whatever you want to call it, Substack podcast. Um, uh, space that I'm not so sure that that would have happened, you know, so quickly from say, you know, mid 2020 till now. Yeah. I think there's some communities that have still gone very crazy and it'll take them a while to snap out of that. But I think both the attention paid to these issues, um, and just strip like frankly, the profit motive in a sense. So if you're an editor at the New York Times or Washington Post, you're not really worried about profit per se. That's for the business side. But you are worried about publishing interesting stuff that isn't um, predictable. And I think both the Times and the Post recently have published slightly heterodox takes on the, the youth gender stuff that is like the 
no-go issue right now. So I, I, I'm with you. I think there's signs of progress, which is maybe, I guess you could read that either as a reason to press this further and really try to get things back to sanity, or you could also see the reason as a reason to be like, okay, we've made some progress here. I can go focus on other stuff. Yeah, I, I think the fact, I think the New York Times newsletter thing with bringing in like John McWhorter and and Jay King and whatnot, I think that reflects that you know I, I'm sure that they're very keen to engagement and monetization and so forth. So they're yeah. probably seeing that. So thanks, anyways. Thanks, Ben. As always, you know, capitalism just uh, fixes everything. There's no downsides whatsoever. I've always said that. What is up, A A B B B? Is that your given name? Uh, my middle name, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'd like to speak in defense of culture war stuff a little bit. Um, I think, well, I mean, I, I think a lot of us, I mean, all of us, appreciate you for that. that. That's the reason we like you. And uh, the issues, I mean, often they're kind of described as being inconsequential, and sometimes maybe they are. However, um, not always, and often they're very important. And the reason there's culture wars because, like, the conversation about it is so low quality and so uh emotional and unproductive that yeah. that's why i appreciate your work i think you, you bring a, a level of sanity and sense to it that is sorely needed right so even though maybe whatever um you know putin or in russia or whatever some you know wars are made more objectively important there could be a, a, a place where there's sort of more there's more of a vacuum for you know making sense and where you can you know, do something that's relatively not as as well done. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I'm going to mute you for a sec just because there's a weird fuzz, but then I'll unmute you after I, I stop talking. But, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, what I try to do is, like, if you go on my newsletter and you see what I've written about Kyle Rittenhouse or Dave Chappelle, I try to write about those um, issues in ways where, like, it's not just dumb culture war sloganeering. I try to get to the principles at stake. I try to, like in the case of something like Rittenhouse, just be like, what's true? What do we know about what's true? What, what's been debunked? And, and really go at it in a facty way. I think you're getting at part of the problem here, which is that people treat as like meaningless culture war stuff some things that are pretty important. Like if, if the whole country is watching footage of Kyle Rittenhouse and it causes riots and stuff – the fact of the matter there is pretty important. This isn't just like a Democrat versus Republican thing. This isn't an SJW versus Magachat thing. I think it's actually important to figure out what happened. And and part of the reason I get drawn to these issues is, um, you know, journalists just not doing their job, not taking that approach. So I guess in that sense, it's like that's an example of maybe where the line between um, uh, culture war and non-culture war is a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, and in defense of repeating yourself, I think that – like, for instance, I listen to a lot of podcasts, right? I listen to a lot of podcasts with people like you. And one thing you notice, I'm sure you do this, is you listen to a podcast with the same person with different people they're interviewing, or be interviewed by, rather. And they're saying the same story over and over again, right? They're explaining like, their book the exact same way. And it's, it's annoying because it's the same thing over and over again, but you need to do that, right? It's important to repeat yourself sometimes just because you need to get the, the message out, right? We're selling a book. You need to say, "Hey, this is the book. This is what it is." Over and over, because it's good, right? Now, maybe not on your Substack. You don't need to write the exact same article over and over and over. However, if you're if you're saying the same types of stuff to different types of audiences, potentially, that's valuable, in my opinion. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I just I do think in some of these cases. 
like how many more takes do we need? But yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right overall. I got to, I got to think about this more. A- anything else? Yeah. Well, what you're saying reminds me of what, uh, Scott Alexander, the writer for, uh, Blade Star Codex and Astral Codex 10 talks about sometimes how like he has blog posts about, um, uh, rarely culture war topics, sometimes things like charity, things like, you know, just sort of obscure technical things. And the culture war gets like, hundred times the uh, the interest and it's kind of ridiculous however um, I probably would never have found his writing if not for culture war stuff and I probably would never found you and a lot of people who I value right so I think you know there's a sense in which culture war stuff kind of invade the reason culture war is because it invades your brain um, and it makes everything about itself it's just kind of like a mind virus and makes people care about stuff makes people really interested in stuff and you know one good so, which is kind of unfortunate, and that's not great. However, you can sort of harness that that interest towards something that can be uh, positive, and that's where I think uh, is it can make it a positive. Right. It's like a uh, a store where there's a sign outside that's like strippers and booze inside, and then you get inside, and there's very healthy uh, vegetables to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, talking about like. Never talking about culture war stuff. I don't think that's like the solution, right? Because no, I mean partially because it's important, but partially because you're not going, no one's going to see you. So you need to, if you want to kind of make a difference, you need to, you know, meet people where they are. And that makes sense. Yeah, anyway, well, that makes sense. That's about it. Yeah. Thanks, I appreciate. It. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess the other side of that is like you can get to a level where um, uh, enough people know who you are that you don't have to worry about expanding your audience as much anymore. And I'm, I'm not there, but I, I do have enough of an audience that I don't need to like desperately try to find new readers. I don't know. Some of this is just like, these are, these are very first world problems to have admittedly. Jacob, what's up? Hey, uh, good evening, Jesse. Hope you're enjoying it out on the left coast. I am at my friend's house in LA looking out at, uh, mountains and it is sunny and 85 degrees out. So I cannot complain. That's a lot better than what it is here in the Upper West Side of Manhattan <laughs> right now, so I am jealous. Uh, I'll be back there soon enough, don't worry. I'll, this is a temporary. Woohoo! Well, yeah, I just wanted to quickly weigh in on uh, your earlier references to some of the sub-stackers feeling the culture wars. And, like, while, yes, people like Andrew Sullivan and Barry Weiss obviously do plenty of culture worry stuff, I do think that you demean their work a bit to just shove them into the culture war bubble because while they do do a lot of culture war stuff, there's also a lot of other stuff there. Like, oh, just to be clear, I didn't mean to do. I'm I'm a reader and and know them both, and I like their work. I I just meant more. It's not like I'm one of like the brave few taking on these issues, and I I, I don't even think it's bad to cover. As I've said, there's like. Anyway, I, I won't go on. I just I didn't mean to demean them, to be honest. Oh, just okay. I was going to be like, well, yes, like Barry obviously does plenty of culture war stuff. She also interviewed, you know, Kim Kardashian and Liz Cheney recently in her podcast on some very substantive stuff. Yeah. And she had Matt Taibbi on today to talk about the, you know, stuff happening in Ukraine and Eastern Europe now debating Brett Stevens, who is also, you know, not, does do plenty of culture war stuff, but is not exclusively a culture war person. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Anywho, I actually like, on, on the Rogan controversy, 
it's honestly become just like so difficult to like actually listen to all this coverage now because like the reality is that nobody cares and most of the attacks are coming from people who are not exactly very clean themselves like mr neil young for example who's trying to kick off the spotify boycott woodside california the silicon valley suburb that he lives in which has an average income of 250K and is less than 0.3% black by population, just passed an ordinance to declare the whole town a mountain lion habitat. I didn't know Neil Young lived in the mountain lion habitat town. That was a great story. Yes. So, like, his town just passed a mountain lion habitat ordinance to try and block affordable housing from being built in his extraordinarily wealthy, 90% white and less than rounding error black California suburb. And nobody who's pumping up Neil Young for his righteous indignation is pointing out the fact that his very affluent, exclusive suburb is pulling a bullshit ordinance to try and keep it affluent. Well, it's not just that, but, I mean, he also had this, like, very – this PR statement about how much he appreciates Amazon and Apple, which it's like those are not companies that have their own hands clean on various fronts. I'm with you. I I wish we could talk about this stuff more substantively because I I, I think – I think Rogan has a tendency to nod along with whoever's on, um, although he also has his own views. I, I do think there's like some pretty batshit conspiracy stuff that has gotten on the show, but like you, I'm just like, I'm so struck by the disingenuousness of the complaints, especially when you look at how badly many liberal outlets have screwed up really important stories. So I just find myself caught in the middle on a lot of this. Oh, yeah. And then, like, you look at, you know, uh, Sagar and Jetty actually just did this whole thing about how a Democratic super PAC was actually behind the recently viral video of him saying the N-word from various contexts. And that was actually a very interesting analysis, too. But, like, you look at the attack machine that's coming from certain outlets, and it's like you have MSNBC, which is, you know, well, not, Andy Lack is gone, but Noah Oppenheim is still there. And then you've got, like, Mike Barnacle, who was fired for plagiarism, who's an anchor there now, and Nicole Wallace, who was, you know, one of the Iraq War propagandists, who's one of their star anchors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So it's like you'll never hear them say, well, yes, we'll go after Joe Rogan, but hey, look at our own house. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And it's honestly like so many people I know have just like, even like very, you know, centrist establishment people who love cable news are really starting to get tired of the constant attacks on Joe Rogan. But it's like, yes, he's a podcaster who might say dumb shit, but at the end of the day, it's not really anybody's concern. And like Margaret Sullivan just did her Washington Post piece about the sports editor who died, who may or may not have listened to Joe Rogan, but it's his fault anyway. Yeah, it's, 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 um, there's a lot of misinformation problems and a lot of health misinformation problems, but Rogan's like really just one guy. And I think, I, I don't know. I, I think it would just be, it's more interesting to do what some people have done and try to figure out why he's so successful and why he fits this niche. And you can do that while talking about how you wish he adhered to higher uh, fact checking standards. Exactly. But yeah. And so I also, as you say, it- it's, it's an interesting question in terms of what comes down to a culture war story versus what is legitimate news. And I think that line is long past being blurred and just doesn't really exist anymore because there has been so much overlap. Yeah. Um, well, that makes oh. sense to me. Yep. And also, uh, I was recently reading your profile on the wonderful transgender map, which is a thing apparently. You should check it out if you haven't seen it yet. 
Yeah, unfortunately, um, I'm going to take the next call, Jacob. Thank you. I, the a woman named Andrea James is like really fixated on a number of us, uh, and she just she took all this. She raised twenty thousand dollars for a supposed machine learning algorithm that would make it easier to get transphobes fired. But then she seems to have used that money. Um, solely to like do ugly caricatures of her enemies and on her website transgender map it's if you google alice drager andrea james you'll get a hell of a story about how crazy this person is but i i don't want to think about her it's too nice in california to think about her although i think she's out here so hopefully i won't run into her you're sorry and what is up how's it going jesse good how are you uh i'm good uh i'm glad you're enjoying the warm weather as a as a Californian, uh, I try to enjoy it, but in the back of my mind is always working the fact that this is really just an extension of the drought. And so as much as it is nice to be to have bluebird skies in 80 degree weather in February, uh, I would I would much prefer some overcast and drizzle. California feels very precarious just as like a uh, as a project, as something that exists. The whole thing doesn't feel like it could last forever. <laughs> Yeah, and that actually, I mean, interestingly dovetails some somewhat of your conversation. I mean, I've lived in other parts of the country at various points, but I was born in California. I've lived most of my life here in both the north and the northern and southern California. And I've always defended it against, you know, the various attacks that people have liked to lob against it. And, you know, the only problem, really problem with California is that it's so awesome that it, it's got too many people in it, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the the real problem now is is the ideological one is that it's it's a you know politically speaking it's just uniformly blue i mean there are pockets of red here and there but in terms of state governance and the major cities it's it's you know and you just get that sort of that tipping effect which i think i don't think this result has is subject to the replication crisis where you know like-minded people tend to radicalize each other right when you get them together yeah I think so that's pretty just, well, but but don't you guys? Isn't there that weird thing where because of the referendum system, you often regularly get like conservative results there in terms of you know anti affirmative action and stuff like that? Yeah, You're just saying you can, at the level of like city governance, right? Exactly. Yeah, you can get that. I mean, the the referendum power is always a bit of a wild card, and I mean, Prop Thirteen is sort of the classic example where it really screwed up the the tax structure of the state in many ways. But yeah, the anti-affirmative action vote, I think, I think it shows that there's, there's a hunger for more nuance in our politics, but the party system being what it is, right, in order to be nominated by the Democratic Party to, to be the governor of California, you have to have made your way through Democratic Party politics. And that tends to weed out, you know, more centrist types and you get, you know, I mean, <laughs> people like Gavin Newsom, who is just, you know, Anyway, I we could go a whole thing on California politics, but just to get to your broader point, I mean, I think the phrase culture war at this point, I think it made sense probably in the 90s. I think it's outdated now because I don't I don't think it's a culture war. I think it is it's an ideological war, right? I think what you're seeing is this sort of counter movement against the enlightenment and, and classical liberalism as we've come to understand it, because it has problems. It's not a perfect system. It is itself an ideology. I just think it's the, the best idea, you know, it's like Churchill, right? It's the worst ideology except for all the others. Right. And so it's, I think some of the coverage of the stuff is going to have to get more meta. It's going to have to 
examine more of the, the ideas and the pathologies that are underlying this culture war stuff. And to me, you know, it's no longer the, the framing of left versus right is no longer a helpful lens to look at this stuff. It's more like who's, who's on the side of sanity and who's on the side of insanity. And the insanity isn't limited to the woke left. There's certainly plenty of insanity on the right with, you know, election conspiracism and Alex Jones and all that stuff. But I, you know, I don't want you to undersell yourself and your efforts and just saying, oh, well, this is just culture war stuff because it connects on a deeper level about what the American project is going to look like in the 21st century. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm with you. I obviously wouldn't write about it if I didn't think it's important. I just think there's um, maybe ways I could pick and choose my spots and, and have a better ratio of that to other stuff, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I don't know, you know, John McWhorter, I read his, his book on woke racism and I liked it, but to me that was sort of just scratching the surface. I really do think that in this post postmodern era, the, that with the, the decline of traditional religion, that it it's that religious impulse hasn't gone away. It's just channeled into, into new ways. And because of that, you know, I think it was easier I mean, with the rise of the evangelical right in the 80s, what it, you know, setting that aside, I think it was easier for pe people in America in the 1960s or 70s to like go to church once a week. And then that was that realm. But now because of these religious approach to to our culture and to our society, it, it infects everything. And that's why people can't compromise. That's why they can't see things from other people's points of view. That's why, I mean, the whole thing about Rogan and the N-word, I mean, that is a class, I mean, it's a taboo, right? Now it's just a, ta a, like a taboo. It has this religious, quasi-religious character to it, right? Where it's just, if you utter this, this thing, then you are then cast out from polite society. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling at this point, but. No, I know. I, I, yeah, and I appreciate the call. I mean, I, I, I um, that idea that like the, uh, I, I, we have certain like our brains work in certain ways and, and liberal impulses don't come naturally to them. I think um, either or thinking and rigidity and like concepts of sacredness and taboo do come very easily to us just because of how our brains evolved. And um, yeah, I, I think there's more to be said about the general path. John McWhorter went down, not just with like wokeness or whatever, but with, with all sorts of thinking. And, and I mean that John Haidt brought me into a, a lot of social psych stuff and that sort of, his whole thing. But um, anyway, thank you for the call. You sorry. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Jesse. Shauna, what's up? Hey, good afternoon. Good evening. Um, so to go back to your question, I'm going to put on my mom hat and then I'm going to put on my selfish hat after that. So my mom hat says that you need to make choices that are best for you and what you want for your life and for your uh, mental health, physical health, whatever that looks like for you. And that includes your own career choices. Um, and so as much as I could say, I want you to write out this or that or blah, 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 ultimately you have to do what's best for you and your future um, and deciding what that looks like for you. Because if you, if writing simply about cancel culture and going after it and feeling compelled to check different social media and respond to all these different little um, lights that pop up 
it can be defeating and it can just tear at your psyche. So I just throw that out there that you got to do what's, what's best for you. Thank you. And yeah. And decide what that looks like now <clears throat> for my selfish hat. Um, thinking about, you know, again, people talk about cancel culture and what a bad term that is. I, I feel like there are very few still journalists who are really tapping into not so much cancel culture, but this, the differences in class, because it, again, people look at different ways. And to me, it seems so much <clears throat> obvious about the differences in class issues. And, and I will say Matt Taibbi has talked about this, but even in journalists. And so as an example, again, many of us listen to the same things, Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan, um, and you, and I'm, and I'm going to say something and I don't mean it rude at all, but all of you come from a certain type of background. A lot of journalists do where yeah. obviously you're on West coast, uh, East coast. And many of you went to prestigious universities, followed certain different paths, um, probably grew up upper middle class. So just by having that experience, frankly, there's so many of y'all that don't represent the, the most rest of us for uh, really bad grammatical. Uh, no, I think that. No, I mean, I think that's totally true. I've I've written a little bit about that, but the class problem in journalism, I think, underlies a lot of these fights from Joe Rogan on down. Yeah, and there's just so much that that goes unspoken, and and it's not just about that. It's obviously a big to, a big problem is the lack and the deterioration of these local newspapers, where they're just wiped out and obliterated so those stories don't get told in in a, in a manner and i know barry weiss has lamented about this quite a bit how she and brett stevens were hired to somehow represent a whole genre of pe millions of people that voted for trump though i doubt either of them did uh, in 2016 and uh just the how illogical that was because you're just trying to yeah. still bring in a liberal who's uh, right of center slightly. And, and so there's so much that could be tapped into, like understanding how, uh, so I live in, in Washington state now, but I, I grew up in Texas and New Mexico. Like no one ever uses the term Latinx there. Yeah. Like anyone who grew up by the Rio Grande. And so to understand these people who voted for Trump, uh, more so in 2020 and why they would do that. When it just seems, again, illogical to someone who is on the left. And so kind of thinking through this, if you have the flexibility, like you seem to enjoy to travel. So why not spend, you know, part of the time in Brooklyn and part of the year now that you might have some financial flexibility and just traveling around and visiting different small towns that happen to be in the middle of the country? No, I mean, so, I, I, yeah, I, I. I think that's a good point. I do sometimes – it's tricky. If you're not of a community and you parachute in and you're like, tell me what you think about politics, sometimes I think there's ways that genre can go wrong. Um, but I also – I'm with you that we do need more like actual coverage from those parts of those – from those parts of the country because they're just – but the kind of coverage we need from them has like – it has to be like a sustainable journalistic investment in them. Or maybe what you're suggesting is like a, a useful halfway point, at least. 
Yeah, I was just thinking, like, if I were talking to you as a friend, which frankly, many of us, you know, you don't know us, but many of us feel like we know you because you've shared aspects of your life. Yeah. And um, so I'm just thinking, like, off the top of my head, as a friend, that maybe even half the year, get a place in Louisiana. And because you mentioned that you liked New Orleans, but maybe somewhere outside New Orleans in a smaller town and write about the culture there. Again, just ideas off the top of my head that could provide some breadth and depth and also a little bit of decompression for you as well as as a person who has like personal things. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. John. I appreciate the suge- suggestion. I definitely do want to spend more time out of New York one way or another. Uh, thank you for the call. Uh, Jeb wins. That's a good, uh, takes me back to a simpler time when Jeb exclamation point was a major source of all our attention. What's up? Uh, not much. Yeah. I was trying to think of something more entertaining for you to read as a headline, uh, <laughs> as a post. Anyways. Um, yeah, I was just listening to calls. Yeah. To echo what my predecessor said, you got to do what works for you. I know that you like writing about science. So maybe, some, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm just thinking, uh, I've been seeing a lot more momentum or a re- renewed interest in, I guess, nuclear energy when trying when people are spitballing for uh, new top ways to kind of fight global warming. So I wasn't sure if that'd be your territory. Otherwise, I, I've wanted to get into the nuclear debate for a while. It's just one of those areas with like a really high barrier for entry. But I think in terms of uh, areas yeah, where yeah. I should put some time into learning the basics, it's it's right up there because it's it's so important and. My understanding of the basic math is that the the path toward us not being fucked climate wise gets so much more <laughs> difficult if you take nuclear out of the equation. That, but maybe I've only heard that from like the pro nuke side. So I don't. Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I mean, uh, I mean, I remember going to college and a lot of people were talking about nu- about renewable energy, but honestly, I didn't really know that. It sounds like the big issue right now is batteries at this point. That's my understanding of the situation on that yeah. front. Um. I guess the other thing regarding culture war, yeah, I kind of get where you're coming from. It can kind of feel like just an ongoing cycle of BS, if you will. I mean, I think even Aziz Ansari talked about it, how it, uh, we'll, I'll be fighting for two to three weeks over the same story. Uh, whether yeah, I just watched his special with my friend that I'm staying with last night, actually, and he talks about that. Yeah, it was just like, I, I was actually thinking about that. The fact that he went to a flip phone is... That's awesome. Wow. I wish I could go that uh, far. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good. Got more power to you, but nope. Yeah, nope. exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing that came to mind to me was the when it was talking about like others were talking about Joe Rogan and Chappelle. I think you brought up Chappelle. I was just curious about what your thoughts on the statute of limitations for offensive comedy. People were talking about like uh, Dave Chappelle using, sorry, uh, Joe Rogan using the N word in terms of the, I guess that use mention distinction. But I was also thinking about like other comedians like using the N word. Uh, the most recent example is I was watching in 1996 that some Howard Stern clips from the 90s, uh, including one where he was in full blackface for some roast for Whoopi Goldberg. Oh my god! Using the N, I mean, it was a whole the whole Al Jolson. I mean, my 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 view is that. No, I don't think you can cancel comedians for stuff. I, if you watch The Office, you, you can watch stuff, episodes from a hit show from like 2010, and they absolutely make jokes you couldn't make today without getting in trouble. You can watch 30 Rock, which is, along with The Office, one of the best shows ever, and they literally did blackface, I believe, twice. It, I just 
clearly major networks would not have run these forms of comedy unless they were seen as acceptable enough at the time. And I don't, if we want comedy to not suck, I don't think we can restrict things more than acceptable at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that norms have to change. I, I kind of agree with some of the Bill Maher's to be forthright complaints, but sometimes it, some of the culture war arguments just seem silly, like the Mr. Potato Head losing the Mr. That just seemed like a non-issue to yeah. me. But when it came to things like the uh, one of uh, Mr. Dr. Seuss's books, I don't mind removing it from kids section, but at least make it available for like historical records, even if it's still in some classics circulation, so to speak. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think a lot of these uh, – thank you for the call. I think a lot of these are like obvious compromises, but we're so invested in yelling at one another. That's right, why I'm right. exhausted by it. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you get to the next person. But again, thank you for taking my call. You have a good day. Thank you, Jeb wins, exclamation mark. Uh, we're going to do Patrick and then Ben, and then I'm going to wrap it up after that just because I actually I have a call uh, shortly. Patrick, what is Hi, Jesse. Hope you're doing well on this uh, Wednesday mid-afternoon to early evening. I am. Thank you. Yeah, so I do find the question of what is and what is not culture war to be uh, intriguing because something that's considered part of the culture war kind of presumes this kind of uh, insignificance in everyday life. Uh, what I would say is that if I, cause, and that's how it's hard to kind of define definition for it because what is important to people kind of matters from person to person. So what I may consider a culture war issue, another person doesn't. I guess for me, for my own person, since I like to have definitions of things, I would consider a culture war thing something that doesn't material affect someone's everyday life. So, For example, uh, I think NPR a few hours ago, I saw on Twitter, posted a story about whether or not white people are not reflecting their privilege by using non-white emojis. I saw that. I hope they get a Pulitzer for that. It was really good work. Not that I read it, but I can just tell. MacArthur Genius Grants all exactly. around, uh, and uh, a Netflix show, but like something like that. That I figure I would put into a culture war category because I don't really think me texting anybody affects their kind of daily life unless I'm texting like a bomb threat to someone. Right. A bomb threat. A like, bomb threat followed by a black thumbs up sign. Yes, they have to know that I was a racist uh, when I send the threat. Exactly. Or when it comes out. Uh, but something like a race admissions policy is something that I wouldn't consider a culture war issue because that does affect kind of people's material lives. I know being a lawyer, you would get into the point of, well, where do you de- determine whether something's like affecting someone's material life? Yeah. But that's kind of what lawyers were born for to quibble about. No, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, to me, part of the, another reason I keep getting sucked into these stories is I think it's interesting in its own light that we have a subculture within journalism and academia that actually thinks or at least pretends to think is incentivized to pretend to think that changing the color of an emoji thumbs up does have a material impact on stuff because clearly they at the very at the very least they have to strongly pretend to believe that to turn out the take so i think you could do like a meta article of of how it came to be that so many people care about symbolic bullshit but i do think as like a first pass at a definition of culture war versus non-culture war. That's probably a good start. Well, I guess my question for that would be whenever one of these things come up, I feel like if you're arguing that something has a kind of a harm or something else, you have to first establish that it actually does have that kind of harm or that it does have some kind of value. Otherwise, if you're saying like, I believe uh, doing like change, like let's use it for a basis. 
uh, let's take a Robin D'Angelo thing. If you're saying that like changing individual people's perception to get them to be anti-racist will result in society change, I think that if you're going to make that claim, you have to have some kind of evidence to support it. I can't <laughs> say that. Sure, like, but like that, it would also be nice if unicorns existed. Well, that's exactly the point, and I think a lot of people want to kind of make these kind of broad claims without any actual kind of effort or research. Evidence. On yeah, yeah, no, that that we're rife with those sorts of takes that just don't have any. Um, Evidence behind them. It's bad writing. Anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Uh, no problem. Hope you have a great night. You too. Uh, all right, I'm going to finish up with Ben. I'm sorry I can't get to the rest of the queue, but I, I got to wrap it up after this. Ben, what is up? Hey, thank you. Um, on the uh, point of uh, journalistic, like something like the NPR emoji take, right? Now, if you had to break it down i mean being being within this industry and knowing a lot of these people that participate in it i mean to what extent is it they they think that that's the true believer that that's an important issue and it deserves to be aired versus hey i have a quota of how many stories i gotta post versus uh this is you know just inside baseball moral hygiene signaling virtue type of motivations i mean if i had to guess like even at a place like npr a very liberal place i bet i don't know these these are ballparks 15 percent true believers vast vast majority of skeptics who don't think emoji color matters but the main the important thing is of the skeptics the vast majority of people would not express skepticism in a slack channel or in uh a company meeting. And uh, I know that in part from like talking to people at the New York Times where, you know, Donald McNeil Jr. gets fired for using the N-word on a a trip with some rich students and uh, all these staffers, hundreds of them, maybe 150 or so out of, I think there's a thousand working in the building, something like 15% of the people that put their name on a letter demanding he be reinvestigated. There were a shitload of time staffers who were furious at how the Times handled this, and that is ouster. Or at least I can infer that just because I don't know that many people on the Times, and I talked to people who thought it was ridiculous. But they, they were not going to put their names public. They were not going to write a letter. They were going to maybe write one-off email. So I I think it's a pluralistic ignorance thing where the majority doesn't realize they're the majority. Uh, and I really think even at a place like NPR, you know, there are a lot of liberals who are not idiots, who are smart, and who don't like the focus on symbolic bullshit. So I think it's a problem driven by that combination of a small number of true believers, or people who can pretend to be true believers, and a lot of people who will not push back against it, uh, you know, in an internal setting. For fear of being labeled as a bad... Yeah. I mean, when this stuff happens, like, it, it gets really crazy how much, how quickly you can get labeled racist for sort of second or third order reasons. So you're racist because you disagree with the idea that someone should be fired for using the N-word in a non It's like so many steps removed from personally being racist, but there's this like context collapse where that, oh, you're on his side, therefore you're racist. And I was I was in a um, listserv. I'd been on it for like 15 years. I ended up leaving because it completely melted down over this stuff in exactly that way where just you, you could not make very basic like vanilla points without yourself being accused of whatever. And it, it makes it a miserable place and it's driven largely by people not wanting to speak up. Yeah. It seems like a, it's a Kafka trap yeah, where exactly. you, even to just question that very dynamic, Hey, let's, let's notice this is a second, third order <laughs> problem that you're identifying here. Oh, well now we've got a fourth order problem. 
Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you. Anything else, Ben? Thank, no, thank you. All right. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, if you enjoy this, I would just ask you to spread the word, tell other people about my show, about Colin. Uh, and that is it. I will be back soon with, with more hashtag content. Thank you guys again.